Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, a little whiff of Weimar from Bertolt Brecht's The Three Penny Opera. It certainly feels like it, doesn't it? Yes, I have a very special couple here with me today in the studio live. And um, each one has a book. And they do not seem to be, they seem to be what I would call a mellow couple in the sense uh, their publicity says that they will agree to disagree at times, but they are both writers and they have, what is that, um, computers in separate rooms <laughs> where they do their work. Their names are Charlotte and ha- Howard Jarmy. that's J-A-R-M-Y, and I've got them in here to tell you, you know, how to have a happy marriage and Keep, keep, keep writing. And Charlotte's book is called Reflections, A Columnist's Journey Through Time. And uh, Howard's book is called Fables and Foibles. And later on, I'll give you the uh, web address and all that good stuff in case you want to order their books at once. <laughs> Charlotte says, my book takes in more than 10 years of newspaper columns. And she has, oh, she, she teach, she's teaching English. Are you teaching now, Charlotte? Well, I'm teaching adults now. Aha. Uh-huh. I, I actually, uh, left teaching high school back in 1991. 91. You're a recovering English teacher like me. <laughs> I, I quit very quickly. I had a, a weak character, but, uh, <laughs> she says that her hometown is New York City. So, how was it in New York, and when did you come to to Berkeley, and are you going to stay here with us now forever? I would say so. It seems like forever right now. Yes. Uh, I came to, with my first marriage, I came here in 1949, so that's a long time. 49, uh, yes. Uh, There's some uh, mention in your biography of the loss of your husband and sons, and... You and Howard, of course, met 11 years ago, so life is is good now, but you did not have an easy time of it. Uh, You talk about years of single life and dating. Uh, I remember spending about 20 years doing that after I'd had the children. (laughs) Well, (laughs) not not easy, no. No, it wasn't, but it was interesting. It was always uh, a reason for me to write, which I enjoyed a lot. I mean, a reason sometimes for me to laugh. And uh, finally, when when Howard and I met, uh, a reason for me to love. You're right. That's it. I remember 
thinking after my divorce, oh, this is what drives women to the pen. Yes, this is, <laughs> you know, if I'd been happy, I doubt if I'd ever got around <laughs> to literature, life and literature. Uh, anyway, uh, how, how, how do your columns work? It says here you've been doing columns, what, 15 years? About 15 years. I'm still writing. You still write the columns. Yes. I love to have a column because, you know, then you have a deadline. And, you you know, you oh. it's like coming here to the radio station. You find out what you really think and feel when you have to tackle the column. Do you do the zeitgeist watch? Or, I mean, do you look around at what's happening in the world? I do that. Uh, and sometimes I have written a column the month before or at the end of a month. And then things happen in the world, you know, like like floods and earthquakes and horrible things. And, and I feel like I have to write about those because it's part of everybody's life. I think so many people really suffer because they cannot say how they feel about what's going on now. Yes. Things are so... I, You know, the other day I was thinking that we should all just find a big room where everybody could vent like crazy. Get you in know? your car, shut the doors, shut right. the windows and yell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what was it? Uh, Tony Morrison says word work is sublime because, you know, it lets you, it lets you transmute all this angst and yeah. suffering. Try to make some sense of it. I think I was a theater person all my life and that was our theory was that you could, you could somehow or another shape this thing, give it some form. Well, I, I also have a second job uh, on the newspaper, and, and I do drama reviews. Uh, and I have actually had to teach myself to do those rather than literary criticism. <laughs> I like to review plays. It's such fun. I like the Dorothy Parker style when you get very yeah. snotty. Oh. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder, Charlotte, if you would read us something so that we can have a taste of your work, and then we'll ask Howard to read something out. Charlotte's book is A Columnist's Journey Through Time. We're going to have a little socio-political consciousness here. What are we going to... Okay, this is from 1993. The book goes from 1993 to 2003 and uh, covers everything that's been happening in your life and in mine. Uh, this one is called World Madness, Past and Present. Sometimes one has to eat one's words. A few columns ago, I wrote of my need to be part of the outside world rather than to cocoon, even when the going got rough. After a few weeks of turbulence, however, I can understand those who long to shut their doors and cover their ears to the confusion and craziness that can take over the business of living. Who can handle with equanimity frontline headlines that shriek, cult suicide inferno, and Joe rejects 49ers, he may be gone. Has everyone gone mad? With the media beating the drums for stories that followed the public's fascination with his local football hero and any event that features fanatics battling law enforcement, no wonder the monumental tragedies of ethnic cleansing in former Yugoslavia were pushed to the background. On April 21st, interviews concerning the brutal psychological effects of wartime on Serb children were relegated to page 10 in the Chronicle. The public's attention demands continuing drama, and the fiery deaths of David Koresh's cult members satisfy that needs. Has anyone asked our children what they felt when they saw the inferno that devoured not only the cult compound, but also the lives of dozens of people, including children? But these stories, too, will pass after several days of breastfeeding over the inhumanity of children dying in the flames. 
we blow on the embers of the story until some other tragedy captures our attention. In a year or less, people will look puzzled if the name of David Kerish comes up, how quickly we forget. Yet this is also the time when the Holocaust Museum opened in Washington, D.C., and received some negative statements. Again, some asked, why in the United States, others said. We should forget that evil of 50 years ago and get on with our lives, others complained. The muffled drum roll behind any reminder of this mind-blowing tragedy in our century keeps pace with the ghostly voices that whisper not to forget, not ever to forget. The very fact that other bloodbaths often gain notoriety as another holocaust attests to the understanding that Hitler's diabolical plan to wipe out an entire group of people, the Jews, must stand as the symbol of human depravity for all time. If it's painful to remain witness to horror, so be it. But witness we must be. Too soon we turn our eyes to other headlines. Too soon our appetites for more and more excitement make us forget past tragedies. The museum exists not only to prod our consciences into understanding the depths that hatred can bring us to, but to gather in that place of historic freedom a sorrowful reminder of all of mankind's potential for evil. Certainly the pictures, the films, the stark echoes of suffering point to the Nazis' factory-like methods of eradicating millions of human beings. Certainly also the museum and the Holocaust itself must be a reminder of all past attempts to cleanse the world, and there have been many. I believe we must share in the responsibility to remember the past in order to protect the future. It's here in the United States that dangerous men have written that the Holocaust never happened. It's here in the United States that a student said to me, Hitler wasn't all that bad. (laughs) Right. When the newsprint about Joe Montana's departure and David Karish's madness fades, there will be other headlines. But I cannot give in to my desire to disappear or cover my eyes. I carry in my genes the responsibility to remember and protest man's inhumanities. That's one of my stories. Ah, oh, yes, makes countless thousands more. And I was thinking of what a sad riddle of the world. Oh, people truly are obsessed uh, with evil, I guess we call it. But, you know, um, some woman the other day said to me, she said, but Jennifer, men love war. I said, surely not all men. <laughs> no, surely no, not. Having no, having been in it, no. No, no. Uh, let me... Let me turn now to Howard and ask you what your answer is to to sadism. Yes, sadism, denial. Uh, I was I wanted to mention to everybody a movie coming up called Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. It's about a young woman and her brother and her friends, all of whom were executed by Hitler in 1943. And the Germans are finally making movies about what really happened? It's a German film. It's a tough movie. It's not fun. Yeah, check yeah. it out. That's good writing. Yes, Howard. What do you think? What is it? I remember my father used to talk about this in World War Two. He was a doctor, and he said that there was some kind of uh, sickness, ecstasy. Uh, what do What do we call that? War fever. War fever. Something. Well, you you hear about that right now in Iraq. It's hard to believe. Um, my experience was in World War II. I go back, and uh, I was in charge of maintaining a squadron of bombers, B-24s. So 
my my experience was a little different than that, but uh, it's it's nothing nothing good. And as far as sadism and all that, all I can say is I'm against it. <laughs> it's, what is, you know, uh, the great Hannah Arendt always talks about the banal quality of evil. I remember my right. father and all those Navy corpsmen and nurses and so forth. You know, and they would say a little esprit de corpse there, fella. They tried, yeah. they frantically tried to make a joke and black humor and irony and you know the mash syndrome and everything, but. Everything I read tells me and everything I see, you know, that we're creating a generation of sick, tragic, tormented, mentally ill people. You know, it's not good for people to live this way. Well, Jennifer, I have to take a a view of technology. Now, I worked as an engineer. That was my career before I retired. But uh, I think there's so much technology now. Everyone has cell phones and my God, their house, their their rooms are full of equipment. I think that we're losing track of of living. Where anytime someone comes out with a new gadget, there's a rush to buy it. Push all those buttons, plug the the earphones into the ear, listen to ten thousand songs. It's just too much. I, I know. I, now maybe I'm no no no. I'm out of touch. You've got it. Every time I see a child, you know, I used to carry the books around. Now I just say, here, here, take an animal, get a guinea pig, you know, something alive, a plant, anything, get them away from that idiot life, you know. Yeah. They're yeah. living electronically, or what we call it, virtual existence. That's right. It's all yeah. just pictures in their heads. I remember years ago asking um, a teacher, a friend of mine, and. Uh, he said, oh, well, technology tells us what to do in any age. The technology will dictate, you know, what we do, whether it's uh, Stone Age or whatever, you know. Now, I, I don't know, maybe we can reinvent ourselves as virtual. <laughs> I don't know, no. I I realize that it's impossible to raise every child on a farm or to give everybody a sense of, uh, you know, the earth and nature, but we could take a, we could take a shot at it. Well, we have so many technical problems, technological problems nowadays. I often thought that instead of the the uh, Congress being consisting of mostly lawyers, maybe it would be better if the if the Congress consisted of engineers and teachers and teachers, Absolutely. because then we could solve the problems in a in a in a uh, you know. In a, in a, Somehow making sense. Absolutely. I have a friend the other day, uh, uh, he was giving me this, oh, you think women would do it so much better because they are closer to... I said, no, no, no. Men are the engineers and they're terrific at it. I said, but, you know, they need to know what <laughs> what to deal with. They can do it. They have the capacity, you know. But uh, what is that? You, Tarzan, me, Jane. Uh, <laughs> the, the female sense, the feminine principle tells us, you know, that the work we do should benefit our children and the species and the well, planet. The species, certainly. Yeah, of course, all the New Age nonsense, you know. But uh, I remember when so many men, I think my father was out on that island when they blew up the bomb, the atom bomb. Yeah, yeah. Right, and he said, my God, they brought down the sun, they're going to kill us all. And uh, the women who were interviewed recently out there, they said the Americans came and they were so smart, so brilliant. She said, but they didn't know what to be smart about. What to feel. <laughs> what direction to take this knowledge, you yes. know, what to use it for. Well, I think we're being sidetracked by all this technology and we're losing, we're losing track of what's really important. For its own <coughs> sake, you know, it's Zeus and the Thunderbolt. Uh, 
you know, these weapons, the boys, uh, what is it, military, industrial complex and all that, uh, I think weapons, what, uh, maybe it's, it's a pathology as far as I'm concerned, you know. They get the darn things and they gotta use them. I want you to read something, uh, not the one about the monkey. <laughs> I want you with with a with a. I'm talking to this wonderful couple, um, uh, Charlotte and Howard Jarmy. This is Jennifer Stone, and they both have books out. And Howard's book is called (laughs) Fables and Foibles. There's 80 pieces in it, and I I want him to read something. What is it? I I think for me the story, the fable, the parable. You know what is it? Somebody said. um, one parable is worth a thousand polemics. You know, it helps yeah. people. Well, you know, <clears throat> you mentioned Zeus, which reminded me. You know, I, my, the first story in my book concerns Zeus. And so I'm going to read that. Here it goes. It's entitled About Sunsets. On the back porch late one cloudy afternoon, I was reading about mythology Zeus was a real operator, always busy, always involved with worldly and godly affairs. He was also a ladies' man with wives and lots of kids, a man's man, so to speak. I would have liked to know him. Now, with the sun going down, I wondered if how and when the sun went down might be something Zeus and his coterie of subordinate gods would decide. They kept busy, 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 got into all sorts of things, sat around making everything conform to their liking. So they could have easily been involved with the sun, to say nothing of the wind, rain, and cold. Uh, I could easily imagine Zeus, big chief, sitting in imperious splendor atop Mount Olympus, his subordinates at his feet as they considered what should be done about the sun. The gods were a feisty bunch, constantly arguing amongst themselves until, usually, Zeus broke in and directed the discussion in the direction he favored. I imagined him laying down ground rules, smiling at those who went along and frowning at those who didn't. The sun must stay high in the heavens and never set, cries one from the back row. We need its unceasing light and warmth. Never, thunders another. The sun must be allowed its rest after journeying across the heavens. It must have time to prepare for its next voyage. Besides, who can put up with perpetual light if you don't remember what happened to Icarus when he and his daddy, Daedalus, were escaping from Crete? I'll tell you, the kid's wings fell off while soaring into light. Misleading argument, cries the first. As a strong proponent of perpetual light, I must object. Would it have been any safer them, for them to be out and about in the heavens when darkness prevailed? Of course not. No one with any sense would fly about in the dark. Those wings fell off because Icarus flew too close to the sun and the goo holding them on melted. He who flies around in the dark might very well smack into a mountain or come down into a forest of treetops because he can't see where he's going. Well, says Zeus, too bad we couldn't have invited them here to talk with us. I understand that Daedalus is busy in uh, designing some sort of labyrinth. He's very creative. He designed those wings for Icarus and himself, but I don't know what kind of goo he used. (laughs) Wax. He used wax as the first. He kept nagging the kid not to fly too close to the sun, but he was ignored. Your wings are only held on by wax, he told the kid. Take my advice and fly only in shady places. Play it safe. Listen to your daddy. 
But you know, you know how crazy youngsters are. If one of us fell like that, he'd bring disgrace to all Olympus, says a voice from the rear. That would hardly be godlike. We must have standards after all, mustn't we? Absolutely, cries another. Venus, god of love and beauty, pleads, let the sun have time to sleep daily in darkness. That will give lovers time to go about their business. Love and romance do poorly under the sun's bright light. Eros, a kindred spirit, chimes in. I cannot woo in bright light, and I don't know anyone who can. Wooing is difficult enough without having to contend with bright lights. <laughs> lights destroy whatever kind of mystery there might be. Take it from me. I know. I'll consider those arguments, promises Zeus. But Leto, his wife of the moment, wrinkles her nose at him. See that you do consider those arguments, she says. You don't always keep your promises. You make all sorts of promises, but how often do you keep them? Well, I'm very busy. Zeus shrugs, looks apologetic. You know, I can't do everything. Even I have limitations. Big shot, Venus whispers to Eros. He spent more time wooing than anyone else and fathered more gods than anyone else. Apollo, Ares, and Artemis. And that's just the A's. I don't know how she puts up with him. Hermes, Perseus, and Pollux, answers Eros with a snicker. Zeus turns to the assemblage. I agree that constant daylight can be very boring to say nothing of being disadvantageous. I rather like the idea of having the sun set from time to time, and it does facilitate all sorts of matters, if you know what I mean. I'll have to go along with Venus on that. We all do, Eros calls, calls out with a wide grin. However, despite my own inclinations, Zeus continues, I'll let the sun stay in the heavens for a while longer. We'll have to plan. No use rushing matters. Venus objects, petitioning for an immediate start to alternating periods of light and darkness caused by the writing and setting of the sun. There is no advantage to putting off a decision, she says. Don't be a nag, Zeus answers. Remember who's in charge here. He looks at the group gathered below him. Fellow gods, this meeting is adjourned. <laughs> it is obvious that incessant sun is impractical, says Zeus at the next meeting. It tempts the young to misbehave. It keeps them out too late and tires them out. And that, we know, makes them obstreperous and even mean. As for the periods of darkness, we'll have to live with them. There's something to be said for darkness, even if it seems a downside. Zeus waits, allowing his assemblage time to discuss his decision. Then he speaks again. Hear me, fellow gods. The sun will sink into the sea. Darkness will then descend upon the land, but never fear. The sun will rise again, and the light will return. Plan accordingly. Will there be a sign, a minor god asked from the back row? Are you the god of stupidity? Zeus answers. Of course there will be a sign. It will get dark. Won't the waters douse the sun's fire and make an awful lot of steam, another god asks? Water will not put out the sun's fire, nor will there be steam, smoke, or any other untoward open happening, Zeus replies. But we could spice up the daily occasion with some nice colors in the sky, say reds and pinks as the sun is swallowed by the sea. A little beauty never hurt anyone. <laughs> I like purple, purrs, purrs Venus. That's very sexy. No purple, says Zeus. That would be going overboard. How about a nice flash of green just as the sun disappears, asks Poseidon, ruler of the seas. It's a sort of neutral shade. Fine, says Zeus after a moment's thought. You've got it. It will add a bit of sparkle to the scene. Now, fellow gods, 
I decree it's time for sport. We've discussed business long enough. He stretches out his arm and points to the heavens. Lightning flashes and thunders, echoes below Olympus. Tephra explodes from the nearby volcanic peaks and whirlwinds whip through the valleys. Zeus climbs off his throne and turns to the god assembles. Anyone for a game of thunderbolts? I turned toward the door. The sun had set by now, and it was dark, except for some lightning flashing off in the distance, followed by rolling thunder. I stood and saluted the storm before going inside. Have a good game, I said. <laughs> no, I think that's why uh, dramatists and theater people, we love, the, we love the mythology because it always gives us the archetypes. Um, the ancient gods, Greek gods, um, you know, they're very, what do you call that? Um, uh, they're visible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, unlike certain other gods who must never be imaged at right. all. Oh, boy. Right, oh. yes, you know, it's very interesting. Um, demigods, I, I remember asking a bunch of students one time, I said, you know, because they didn't know the ancient gods, what they knew were the modern gods, the archetypes, you know, like they knew that Marilyn Monroe is Aphrodite <laughs> or Venus, you see, and uh-huh. I said, who is our, in our culture, in our tribe, I said, you know, who is our Zeus? I thought they'd say like Marlon Brando or something in those days. And one kid looked at me and he said, oh, Donald Trump. Oh, boy. <laughs> Can you believe? Yes. <laughs> that scared me. I said, you out of your mind, you know. But, you know, I said, what is it, Adonis? That would be, well, let's see, a Michael Jackson arc, you know, the Romeos, the young male gods. But, you know, the leading man, whatever, the the wife, the sister, but all the archetypes are there. So they make such wonderful uh, role models. I am personally attached to Cassandra, the woman who was never <laughs> believed. Yes, yes, a friend of mine took the name uh, Cassie. Um, she's a DJ on Free Radio Berkeley. She said, yes, she said, I'm going to be uh, DJ Cassie. I said, nobody's going to get that. That's oh, yeah. yeah, the Cassandra syndrome. Uh, it's getting harder and harder. What is it? The, the agony of hollering and yelling at people. You know, history, uh, history doesn't exactly, history doesn't really repeat itself, but the people always do. The human psychology is always the same. The circumstances and the technology I have, change. I have a story. The oldest man in the world who reads lots of magazines and he, his take on it, he says, History does repeat itself. All the changes are the names. That's it. That's it. And the costumes. My favorite show this year was uh, Rome, that wonderful BBC series, 12 Hours. Have you seen that? I saw parts of it. You saw it? Oh, my God. You know, Shakespeare eats your heart out, actually. (laughs) It wasn't quite enough language. But, no, no, no. I really really had a wonderful time because, you know, without the technology, it's us. You see, I mean, the thing is... uh, now that we have this overwhelming technology, we don't dare behave in these insane, stupid ways. You know, I, I, I didn't get it at first. I remember seeing the movie 2001 and I thought, surely by then, I was very young at the time, you know, we will have advanced emotionally, psychologically, we will understand, you know. But, I mean, when I was growing up, it, it surprised me that... People used cars as weapons, you know. <laughs> and now we're up to jet now we're using planes. planes. Oh, Jesus, you know. God. Never mind. We've we've got to finish up here before we forget right. to get these names. Uh, people, this is Jennifer Stone, and I've had with me this 
couple, two writers, two authors, uh, Charlotte and Howard, and the last name is, is Jar- spelled J-A-R-M-Y, Jarmy, and it's jarmybooks.com. That's the website. And, you know, you can check them there for the books. It says here that... Uh, it tells can, it yes. tells about the books. It tells about us. It tells how to buy the books. And it has some little snippets from the books. Ah, good. I was just going to ask you. You do yes. have some bits. Yes. I, I like people... Uh, people like to see what they're they're getting. Uh, so, now, this... You have 80 pieces in your book. So, we, we didn't even scratch the surface here. Uh, and Charlotte's book, I think... Uh, I've published books like that, Charlotte. I love, you know, essays over time. I did one book over 10 years, you know, and all the things in the zeitgeist changing and changing. You know, I like to do that now, go back exactly 10 years and see what, what was happening that day. Okay, people, it's time for us to go. This is Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. I want to talk about that movie about the White Rose Society, about resistance to tyranny. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. That's Daniel Bernard Rumain, DBR, Haitian-American composer and violinist with Del Sol String Quartet and DJ Scientific in A Civil Rights Reader, Music for Strings, Laptop, and DJ, Musical Portraits of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Adam Clayton Powell, and Maya Angelou, One Night Only at the Jewish Community Center, San Francisco, Monday evening, March 6th at 7.30. When he invented the string quartet... Papa Haydn never guessed that hip-hop would meet him halfway 200 years later. An electrifying evening with DVR, who's reinventing classical music. For tickets, call the JCC box office at 415-292-1233 or consult otherminds.org. A benefit.